The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Hola, I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm his gardening friend Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 118 of The Big Picture for the week beginning July 31. Coming up on today's show... The biggest fan ever of TV show Survivor will join us to vote on Australian Survivor. <laughs> and we go on a funny trip to Spain and also confront War for the Planet of the Apes. There's a mixture. Uh-huh. Trip to Spain, War for Planet of the Apes, Australian Survivor! And Sam Robinson. Hello, mates. Hello, friends. <laughs> hey, buddy. How are you going? Great. Good to be back with you, talking all things movies and film. So uh, maybe we'll kick that off with uh, what's in the cinemas, Ben. Before we unveil who the biggest fan ever of Australian Survivor is, but that's coming up real soon. <laughs> oh. That's coming up. Before we get to that, at Cinemas Chaps, a movie was released last Thursday called A Monster Calls, a dark, intense family film about a young boy, his dying mum, and a creepy tree that's got the voice of Liam Neeson that shares deep life lessons with this boy. Mark reviewed it on the show last week. Uh, here's the short review. He loved it. For the longer review, go and check out the podcast of the show at thebigpicturewebsite.com. You should. You should. And uh, coming up this week at Cinema's Dudes on Thursday, The Big Sick. Mm. The Big Sick, S-I-C-K. This is one of 2017's best-reviewed films. Um, I reckon unless unless something comes along in the next six months that blows out of the waters, I think it's going to be the romantic comedy of the year. I've seen it. I'm going to talk about it on the show next week. It's basically like a mashup of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner meets While You Were Sleeping and somehow Judd Apatow's involved. And Avatar. And Avatar. I, I'm not sure Avatar gets in there. Anyway, I'm gonna, I will talk about it more on The Big Picture next week. Okay, well, coming up in TV, one thing TV reviewers have learned never to do is to predict the demise of Channel 10 too soon. I mean, in my personal career, Channel 10 has been declared dead three times. So here we are. Right, so you know, it's not out for the count even it's now, even, even though it's officially out for the count, even I thought. Officially, it's in receivership. Again, anybody who knows the history knows this is about the fifth time. And you think so. something might revive it? Well, it will be The Bachelor's. Australia season five, of which course, return to a channel ten on it's on Wednesdays at seven thirty p.m. and this year's man of the hour is Matty J. Now, for those of us who know a little bit about the series, uh, Matty J. was the one who was rejected by Georgia Love in last year's Bachelorette. Uh, okay, is his last name line. J, as in just I, the letter J? I don't think his parents. Really did get rid of all. <laughs> so those he's on the rebound. Is that what he's you're on saying? the rebound? Right, but right. now he'll finally find love. Um, he lost out to Lou, uh, to Lee Elliott. Oh, by the way, I was Googling last night. They definitely are. Georgia and Lee Elliott are still together. Are they? So, yeah, you know, as far as Facebook. Good on them. Lovely. Charming. Anyway, Matty hopes to find true love this season. I mean, as he takes up residence in the Bachelor Mansion. Also, um, and this is actually probably a million times more interesting, uh, The Traffickers begins uh, this Tuesday on the ABC at 9.30pm. Now, this might sound, oh, I don't know, terribly, not terribly interesting. Uh, an eight-part investigative series about... Uh, Tra- uh, international trade, illegal trade, traffic. Oh, right, across right. Continents. So it's not just about traffic on yeah, the roads. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like someone stuck in traffic in a car for an hour. Or trade Epis- deals. Episode one deals with how the West's desire to adopt internationally is driving a demand and supply for the world's poorest children. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Oh, this is going to be amazing. Whoa. The other episodes will deal with smuggling of rhino horns, the selling of body organs, gun trafficking, and counterfeit pharmaceuticals. This is a Ooh. fascinating series. Well, there's a, a similar series on SBS on demand called, I think it's called Black Market or on the Black Market. Very similar concepts to this as well. I'm Check sure that this out. Is it's better. worth a look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enough, okay. Enough talk about traffic and trade. Let's talk about true or false. Yeah. And then now for something entirely different. So later in the show, we're going to be talking about this new film called The 
trip to Spain. It's the third outing for this. It's a, like a series of road tripping movies that star these bickering mates, Stephen Co- Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, who are famous English comedians. And this movie series is already quite well known for impressions that Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon do, such as Michael Caine and Roger Moore. This time in the trip to Spain, they actually do, if you can believe this, Marlon Brando and The Godfather meets Monty Python's very famous skit called The Spanish Inquisition. So Marlon Brando, Monty Python, Spanish Inquisition. So for true or false this week, here's a true or false about Monty Python's very famous sketch, Spanish Inquisition. The catchphrase, nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition, has been referenced many times in pop culture ever since, when did it first come out? The 60s, I think? Mm. So which one of... 70s, but... 70s, sure. Around then. So which (laughs) one of these movies or TV shows has it appeared in? That catchphrase, nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition. Has it appeared in Blades of Glory, that Will Ferrell movie? Doogie Howser in Season 2, Episode 19, <laughs> or Iron Man 2, or Community Season 3, and more specifically, Episode 4. So, have we heard Nobody Expects a Smash Inquisition in Blades of Glory, Doogie Howser, Iron Man 2, or Community Season 3? Doogie Howser. Oh, my knowledge of Doogie Howser isn't so good. I'm thinking Community, but let's come back a little later and find out what's going on. We will. Every Australian commercial television network has had its go at this granddaddy of all reality formats. Nine couldn't make it work. Seven had a go at building in celebrities and failed. But it was Network 10 that finally turned Australia's version of Survivor into a ratings juggernaut. The second season of the latest incarnation of Australian Survivor began last night. And frankly, Ben and I felt totally inadequate to estimate its chances of survival. Thankfully, we have someone who survived all 34 US seasons ready to tell us what this is all about. I think Survivor would be one of the toughest games in the world to win because you're up against some very strong, very crafty opponents. I don't think any other game even compares to Survivor. Absolutely anyone can win it. What does it take to win the world's greatest game? To win the game, it really comes down to making the big moves. You're battling against so many different things. You've got a physical game, you've got a mental game. I think what you must have to win is the social game. And now it's with great pleasure that I can finally unveil for the first time in history who exactly is the biggest fan of Survivor ever in the universe that's ever happened ever. Quantified by various institutions we brought on board. (laughs) That's right. We did amazing amounts of research and study into this and discovered that Sam Robinson is actually this massive fan of Survivor. Yeah, not the greatest. I wouldn't say the biggest in the world. Okay, maybe maybe not that big. But... I'm a big fan. Maybe, like I, maybe, maybe the second or, or the third biggest. I've been frothing for a long time for frothing. this season. Okay, so did your frothing pay off? Has is this has this season already lived up to what you want it to live up to, given you've actually seen every single season, haven't you? Is that mm, right? No. Okay, I've got to stop, stop overstating I, things. I, for the last 10 years, I've seen every season. And in oh, the US, they have two okay. a year, so it's like 20 seasons oh, or so more. So it's only the last decade. Only <laughs> the last decade. <laughs> so basically, yeah, this. I mean, if you've never seen Survivor, it is a massive phenomenon. It kind of re, like started reality TV as we know it now, mm. the first big competition. And around the world, there's so many versions of it. And it's, it has survived, It has Sam. survived. The, the 35th US season starts in September. Can't wait for that. But the thing you still can't wait for each season, yeah, even though the, you watch it. That's well, the thing this, I'm most interested here's in. Here's the deal, right? Yeah. So the US version has has really set the bar- benchmark for every other one that's followed. And so this last Australian uh, season of Survivor was actually really good because what they did was they put a, a big budget into it. They went to Samoa. 
Uh, they they spent time on a beach, and so the the first time they try Australia Survivor, the, they yeah. did it off like on a beach in it was South co- Australia. Yeah, it was the coast of South Australia. Thank you, Channel Nine, for taking them all that way. So even though you know Channel Ten has not a whole lot of budget these days, they're doing things on a big scale, and so it's really paying off. The prize money is five hundred thousand dollars, which is pretty big for an Australian thing, even though the US prize money is a million. But I and understand that's why that, Channel Ten's bankrupt. No, I actually understand that that's actually a gift voucher to the Channel Ten um, shop. So. <laughs> oh, all right. Okay, sure, sure, sure. But um, more than 20,000 Australians applied for this season. Uh, Last season, I think the thing that let Australian Survivor down was the players weren't as cutthroat as the US version. So they they might have been like, oh, this looks like a bit of fun. I'll apply for it. But yet didn't really know the game all that well. Uh, So, But I think they've said, Channel 10 have actually said, quote, the contestants are more knowing and they are playing the game much harder in this second season. Well, how much fun then is it going to be for families? I mean, is it the sort of thing where I'd be going, uh, kids, look away, he's just hit it with a coconut. You know, is it, or... Yeah, yeah. it sounds like you're craving more cutthroat than this, Sam. Am <laughs> well, I correct? Well, that, that's that's because that was that's what the game's all about. The, the slogan, outwit, outplay, outlast... Backstabbing is sort of part of the game, but they call it blindsiding, so it's not as <laughs> not as nasty. So it's like the family-friendly version exactly. of backstabbing. So there's a tribal council at the end of every episode. Someone has to go home, and they they someone kind of has s- to go home. They get voted off oh, by yeah. other people. Yeah, weird. but that is that's where you f- form your alliances. Someone gets an immunity idol, so they're safe. So you know, it's a numbers game. It's a strategy game. Okay, and and so the trick to the game is surviving to the end without getting voted off. But you so. You've also got to earn the respect of the people who you are voting off because the final vote for the $500,000 comes from the people you voted off. It, it flips around. Sure, they okay, vote for okay. a winner in the, in the final tribal council. Oh, uh, yeah, so you've got to be careful about who you eliminate. Exactly. So, yeah. you've got you, you know, blindsiding is part of the game, but you've got to be careful you've in the way do it that in you a do nice it. Way. Exactly. Yeah. Or, so make sure real... someone, or make sure what? Someone else is more hated than you? Something like that. Yeah, okay. It's a, it's a game of strategy, and what I think is great about the Australian version is that there's it's longer. So the US standard version is thirty nine days. Australian is fifty five days. So that means that they're stretching it out. There's more episodes. Obviously, they can have multiple a week, and so really. There's a longer game, more endurance. They need to be on their game a whole lot more. Okay, Sam Robinson, um, arguably the third biggest Survivor fan in the world. <laughs> yes. I, I remain unconvinced that backstabbing isn't backstabbing, but mm-hmm. uh, and that sounds kind of like the real negative side of the game, um, as, uh, as you're describing. But what about something positive for Aussie families? We expect loads of Aussie families will be watching Australian Survivor. Mm-hmm. What do you think positively they will take away from the show? I think it's that anyone can win this game. Surprisingly, in past... There's been physically strong players who have won because they can go through the endurance challenges, but also people who are quite intelligent and not so physically strong have won as well because they can do the puzzles. They can they can do the strategy and the thinking. And so I think it shows that anyone from any stage of life or walk or age can win a game like Survivor. Do nice people stand a chance? Yeah. Yeah, surprisingly, people can win respect. And, and actually get through the game without the blindsiding and stay and, and, and walk the game with integrity wow. and still win. It's quite fascinating, but I guess it always depends on the mix of players and that's all in the casting of Channel 10. I think they've done a good job of casting a very diverse bunch of people for this season and I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. Okay, well, Australian Survivor stars 24 contestants from around Australia and is hosted by Jonathan LaPaglia. It airs Sunday and Monday nights at 7.30 on Network 10 and you can catch up with the first episodes on 10 Play. It's rated PG for mature themes, not backstabbing. 
All right, true or false answer, Ben McKechnie. Monty Python's Spanish Inquisition skits, one of the most famous comedy skits in comedy skit history. It has a very, very, very famous catchphrase. Nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition. Did that catchphrase turn up in any one of these movies or TV shows? Blades of Glory, Doogie Howser, Iron Man 2, Community Season 3. I just think community is such an off-the-wall thing that I'm going to go for community. I'm going to guess all of them, Ben McKechnie. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you were right. Uh, oh, many yeah. minutes, you, no, no, no. Hey, wait, 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 wait. You were right many minutes ago when you said Doogie Howser. <laughs> oh, really? Because it didn't appear in all of those. It only appeared in Doogie Howser. If you go to season two, episode 19, you will discover the line, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Ben is that your favourite one? DVD. Is that your favourite, your favourite episode of Doogie Howser? Can, um, can you pick between your favourite children? <laughs> they're all they're they're all special. Actually, sorry kids, but yes. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, as we resolve this, coming up on the big picture, the best of Stevie Wonder taken from a brilliant new American documentary, and we take a trip to Spain with two crotchety British comedians. Plus, also get ready for the war for the planet of the apes. Welcome back to the show. Well, we're up to the soundtrack segment, and this coming Wednesday sees the release to Blu-ray and DVD of OJ Made in America. It's a five-part miniseries that traces the life of American football and acting star OJ Simpson. When you say five-part miniseries, each episode is movie length. Yeah, it you've is, actually seen some of these. I loved this so yeah. much. This one an Oscar is a best it documentary. Won, yeah, it did last year. Ten-hour documentary. Yeah, yeah, and 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 so I think you could. I don't know if it's still on SBS on demand as well, but that's how I saw it. It was just amazing. Oh, like, is it? Oh, I might go there because yeah, I yeah. want to save some money. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Cheap McKegan. It starts with, well, anyway, this series starts with his arrival, OJ Simpson's arrival at the University of Southern California as an emerging football superstar and ends with his incarceration in 2007 when he actually did go to prison for robbery. It's a big part of the series is directed by Ezra Edelman, who's the music and the music that undergirds OJ's decades of fame and infamy are also part of it. There's no place better to start that than with Stevie Wonder and his 1965 hit single, Uptight. I guess I'm both 
Charts at number three in 1966, sat on top of the Billboard R&B singles for five weeks and earned Stevie Wonder his first two Grammy Award nominations. It's had quite the diverse media career too. It's been featuring in the TV series Glee, becoming the backing track for Disney's TV release of vintage Disney animation. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can actually, yeah. there's a whole series of Disney animations that are basically just their vault. I guess someone sat down with some music one day and went, oh, I can do this. <laughs> and then it also appeared in 1995's Mr. Holland's Opus and now being added to the sound soundtrack of O.J. Simpson, Made in America. Clearly, everything is all right. The Wonders of Rural Spain, a collection of fine dining experiences, a side order of midlife crisis, all amply spiced with comedy. What's there not to love about the trip to Spain? British comedians Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon are back with their third outing as two tetchy 50-something friends on tour of fine restaurants, this time in Spain. What started life as a laid-back BBC comedy series now offers big-screen crowds some important insights on what it means for men to grow old. Come, come, Mr Bond. You enjoy the scallop just as much as I do. Bottoms up. Goodbye, Mr Bond. You should pay more attention to your chef. He's working for Her Majesty's government. Move! Move! Oh, you do make me laugh. Okay, for those who don't know, actors Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon are playing themselves, not their actual selves, but this blown-up, larger-than-life version, but with all the problems you can expect for men in their late middle age. And I have to say late middle age because if I say middle age, that includes <laughs> what's, me. What's their late middle age? Okay, right, I see. Older than you, yes. Older than me. Clearly older than me. In the first <laughs> film, they toured Northern England together. In the second, it was the restaurants in Italy, and now they're travelling through Spain. And fans of the first two films are going to see all the usual staples in place. There's a culinary road trip, so you see some interesting restaurants. The trip to Spain is actually surprisingly informative, too. Like, there's lots of information about the Spanish Civil War or Spanish literature, um, or the, the Moors, which is a, a Muslim um, racial group that actually invaded Spain, and their effect on architecture and cubism. It's all in there. But what you're really there for is Coogan and Bride and, and their impressions and, and, you know, basically ripping on each other and all that sort of stuff. There's a wonderful moment where they do this run of impressions about camp Nazis. I don't Sorry, know. a wonderful moment. Camp Nazis, you're <laughs> saying? Not camp as in Nazi okay. camps, but camp Nazis. Sure. It's, look, it's funnier on screen, trust me. Um, and the whole Roger Moore family and their contribution to history. Um, however, the best insights for the thinking filmgoer arise when Coogan and Bryden attempt to explain their own 50s. And, and that's really kind of interesting for me. Uh, Mark, I've seen this as well and the other films in the trip series. Uh, I'm still scratching my head a, a little bit about, do you reckon this is a, 
a movie you need to rush out to see at the cinema, or is it sort of better suited to streaming? Because as you said, it's it derived from a sorry, as Sam said in the intro, it's derived from a BBC TV series. It's a really strange beast. These trip movies. I get, I'm looking to you now. What do you think? Better suited to streaming, or should you go to the cinema? Look, to be honest, I'm a fan, so it's a bit hard. It's like you know, this is my survivor. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit different. <laughs> a little say. bit different. Less cutthroat. Uh, but that said, um, <laughs> I am a fan, so. But I would probably go along and see it at the cinemas anyway for that. So if you love Coogan and Bryden, you're going to. Which which I do, but I'm still, I, particularly Steve Coogan, yeah. I've been thrashing mid-morning matters that's streaming on Stan at the moment. But again, I'm still going back to my question. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'd recommend people to go to the cinema. What about you? Yeah, look, I would probably say this is a great DVD in. You know, it, it's it's good fun to watch and you can pick it up and put it down and, and you probably want to watch it several times. Like, you know, it'd be the sort of thing you might even want to own. But, like, I feel some people, if they didn't really get this comedy, would go pay their 15 bucks to go to the cinema and then be a little, what? You know, yeah. and I think that that's, yeah. you know, that would be a bit unfortunate. I'd rather say, hey, this is a great rainy day in or a great evening at home and that sort of stuff. And if you can stream it or if you can get it on DVD, they're all brilliant like that. Um, one of the fascinating things about these trip movies, and again, what I still scratch my head about, is this larger-than-life version of themselves that Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon play in, in, in these films. And again, we're getting some more exploration of what it is to be a man in their midlife. Where do you think in the trip to Spain they get to when it comes to male midlife crisis? What do you think we're finding out in the trip to Spain? Well, I think what we're finding out is that uh, without a direction, midlife crisis for men can be really quite pathetic. <laughs> you know, so, like, you've got this moment where... Um, uh, Steve uh, actually confesses to Rob, I'm in love. And then he tells the name of the woman to Rob, and Rob says, uh, isn't she married? And he says, it's not ideal. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, that's the yeah. whole sort of the whole sort of direction of his life is that it's just not ideal. He keeps on thinking of things that would make his life better, but there, and he keeps on fantasizing about how things will be. And there's actually some fantasy sequences in the film, but he never quite does it. There's look, there's a really interesting intro, um, reference to these literary characters, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, you know, now Don Quixote is just this knight who lives in this world that no longer exists. Mm, very famous literary figure. Yeah. yeah. As Cervantes and, um, uh, and Sancho Panza is always, bringing him back down to earth and that's really what's going on yeah, to the point they even do a film shoot a moment where they dress up as Don Quixote and Sancho Panza and so Rob Bryan's always bringing Steve down to earth because he doesn't understand uh, that his life is not this merry-go-round and he has to live at some point with real relationships and real people yeah I guess that that leads me to ask you the question Mark about whether there's something for thinking film goers to take away from a movie like A Trip to Spain yeah I think there is because uh, look you know, you could watch this film or you could read the book of Ecclesiastes and you come to the same conclusion. Oh, okay? yeah, yeah, I see, I see what you're saying. Yeah, what's yes, basically yeah. happening is that um, the film, mm. uh, the film's funny and it's got all sorts of, you know, interesting moments and stuff like that. But ultimately, it's really quite poignant because uh, there's this contrast between Rob Brydon, who has a family life, and Steve Coogan has kind of sacrificed his on the altar of Korea uh, and if you chase all of the big things and you hope to somehow fill the void inside of you with all of this success then you know I think somehow you're going to realize like you know Coogan does or at least the character of Coogan that it's empty um, now the interesting thing is that these guys 
almost then put family and relationship instead in front. But it, even that doesn't seem to pay off terribly well. So I sort of feel like um, if they did go and read the book of Ecclesiastes, if, if authors, if people watched it, went out and then read the book of Ecclesiastes, they'd probably be pretty uh, informed as to what a better example of life is, that you need something more. You need someone outside coming in and giving us the meaning rather than just trying to fill it up with you know fluffy feeling things. All right. The Trip to Spain stars T, uh, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, and it opens nationally on uh, August 3rd and is rated M for course language. Guys, speaking about the trip to Spain uh, reminds me of some international reading uh, I was doing the other day over at insights.uca.org.au. Insights, longtime supporters of the big picture. Uh, there's an article there about love in a time of war uh, about a Christian organization called Operation Hope that's in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, and they're providing emergency medical equipment for refugee camps over there. There's a holiday. Yeah, whoa, wow. So vastly different to a trip to Spain, but some good reading over at insights.uca.org.au and a bit closer to home at Insights. Uh, you can learn about a really cool um, uh, thing going on in Jindabyne where a local church is offering free meals to those who are coming to the snowfields at a time of skiing, but helping people with the cost of living there by handing out meals for free. Snowfield dining for free. Uh-huh. There you go. Well, coming up on the big picture, if the trip to Spain has got you all excited about taking an overseas trip, then stay tuned. We are going to plan our own uh, trip to Spain next. And we're also going to get one step closer to the War for the Planet of the Apes. Welcome back. Well, before the break, Mark served up his thoughts on the new adult comedy, The Trip to Spain. And if you missed it, you can listen back to the review by grabbing our podcast. Get it from hope1032.com.au, iTunes, or the bigpicturewebsite.com. But now, for press record this week, Ben met with his Spanish mate, Alvaro. Alvaro. Well, that sounds... Is that how you say it? That's very, that's very close. Actually, I say Alvaro. Oh. Uh, <laughs> how you were saying it actually sounds more Spanish. Alvaro. Well, you met with Alvaro for first-hand recommendations about where to go on a trip to Spain. Alvaro, this week I saw a movie called The Trip to Spain. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't heard of it. What is it about? It's about two blokes, these English guys. They're famous comedians and they go travelling all around Spain and they eat in fancy restaurants and they go to a lot of different places. As I was watching it, I'm like, oh, that looks great. Spain's a fantastic country. I was thinking about you, my Spanish mate, Alvaro. But what I didn't really get from the movie, and this is why I'm talking to you, didn't really get an understanding of where I should visit in Spain. So, as a spokesperson for Spain, what would you recommend to us? If we're going to go to Spain for, say, a week, hit us with some top highlights of Spain. I think uh, the interesting thing in um, Spain is uh, quite a diverse country. You have a number of languages speak spoken there. You have kind of different traditions, different music and different backgrounds that somehow all of them conform what we understand nowadays that is Spain. So uh, if you're interested in food, if you're interested in culture, probably is a good destination. Alvaro, I'm interested in all of those things. So tell me, where should I go? So first, uh, if you get a fly straight from pretty much anywhere around the world to Barcelona, so Barcelona is part of Catalonia. In Barcelona, you can check out a lot of uh, Gaudi architecture. You can check uh, some Dali and some Picasso art. There are a couple of museums there. Fancy art in, what's the city called again? Barcelona. It just sounds cool when you say it. I don't want to say it now, <laughs> but it just sounds cool when you say it. Yeah, so Barcelona is north, northeast. So from there, you can go a little bit south and get to Valencia. Valencia is pretty modern city, has been changed a lot. You have a lot of um, very modern architecture from a very famous architect called Calatrava. And you can check out pretty good paella, where the original paella comes from. 
Oh yeah, that great Spanish dish. Okay, so I get in the car from Valencia. Where do I go next? So from Valencia, you continue going south uh, through the coast and you get to Andalusia. And I just want to say Andalusia as itself is, could be like one destination for a whole trip because it's such a diverse within the Andalusian culture. So you can check out Granada, for example. You have the Alhambra, a really beautiful palace. Uh, you can check Sevilla and you can have La, La Giralda there, one of the, the cathedrals in Sevilla. Do you know what, Alvaro? You've been uh, letting me know about Spain now for just a couple of minutes. Already you have given me more detail and points to go see than this movie, The Trip to Spain, which I think actually went to the Alhambra, it went to Seville, but they didn't really tell me as they were going there where exactly they were. It was, it was, I was a bit frustrated, but that's why I've come to you. Okay, where to next? So from Andalucía, you can get to head north to Toledo. Toledo is actually the was capital of Spain for a period of time. It was really interesting. Pretty much it's called the city of the three cultures because Jews, Muslims and Christians lived together for a number of years. Then from Toledo you can go to Madrid, pretty close to Madrid, about one hour drive, no longer. Madrid is capital, so you can expect this kind of bit of monumental city similar that you can see in Paris. A kind of different style because it was sort of built kind of later than all of these other capital cities and you can check out heaps of very important museums there, El Prado, lots of cultural things to do within it. And then from there you can go to Segovia, that's another small city, you have a very beautiful Roman aqueduct and then you can degustate a pretty good piglet there. Go back to the piglet bit, what? You can do what? You can degustate some piglet. As in you can eat a piglet? Yeah, you can. Yeah. And uh, it's really, really delicious. I'm just a bit distracted now by thinking about eating piglet. But, and my geography is not great of Spain, but I think what you're doing is kind of taking us from the top and down, down to the south and then we're coming back up. Is that right? We're doing effectively a loop. And so is our trip to Spain almost finished? And if it is, where, what kind of place should we finish off at? From Madrid, I think the, the, the ideal place to go and probably one of my favorites to go is Basque Country at the very north, center north of Spain. You probably have like one of the most beautiful food you can get around the world. There is um, two big cities, Bilbao and San Sebastian. San Sebastian, I believe is the, the city with more Michelin stars per capita in the world and beautiful city close to the sea and you should go check it out. Well, the trip to Spain we talked about earlier is a third in a series, right? Yeah, a we should have labeled that correctly as a threequel. It is a, it's a, it's a <laughs> trilogy, it's a franchise. But you may not have never heard of it before, mm. right? Well, here's a threequel that came out this week that you probably have heard of. The third instalment, War for the Planet of the Apes, continues the epic tussle between humans and smart monkeys for global supremacy. And Ben McKechn, he went to war and was startled that the Bible was among the on-screen survivors. Prepare for battle. They took too much from me. Family. And more apes die every day. Human gets sick. Ape gets smart. Then human kill ape. But not me. Okay, mate, you have been a bit sceptical about this series in the past. I think that's fair. How well is this travelling as a trilogy? 
Yeah, you think that's fair. I think that's a little bit, little bit overstated. <laughs> it's I'm, because I've been I, overstated myself yeah. in my life. <laughs> I'm often one of those guys who says something's good, not great. When a lot of people are saying great, I don't know what that it says about me. Maybe I just dampen enthusiasm. Are you calling a, yourself a, a wet blanket? Much. I'm he's, a bit of a wet blanket. He's that's, a laconic Australian. There we go. I'm so laid back. I, I become a wet blanket, and we so I hang you out to dry, Ben. <laughs> I, oh, oh, Sam, I think I've been that way a little bit about the Ape series. So, uh, so to be clear, this franchise I really like, and um, I've really enjoyed the fact that Planet of the Apes has come back and, you know, from the 1968 original, we already had a whole bunch of sequels and TV shows and stuff, and then that terrible Tim Burton remake that came out, say, Yikes. 10 years ago. Yeah. It's quite amazing what's been done with these recent Apes films. Um, I think largely due to the um, sophistication of computer-generated technology and imagery on screen that renders the Apes on screen so, so well. But when we get to War for the Planet of the Apes, Mark, um, my, my skepticism, I think, is largely around how can you like draw this story out longer and longer to get to the point where we get to Planet of the Apes. And I think War for the Planet of the Apes has done it again, where it's, a, again, just a progression on a theme that we're getting again now of this uh, idea of apes rising up, getting more intelligent, and humans at the same time kind of getting less so. But this one, we're, we're like deeply involved with what's going on on the ape side of things as America, America's kind of splintering. There's all these military factions going on around the place and really War for the Planet of the Apes boils down to what is a stoush between apes versus some army members? Um, so again, it's a relatively limited story, I think, but in terms of drawing out a franchise, I think apes continues to do it really, really well. Welcome back to the fold. <laughs> uh, look, who are the apes in this one? I guess that's the thing because you, you've had this sort of collision of cultures. Who are the apes and who are the humans? <laughs> collision of cultures. I love how high-minded we start talking about, <laughs> about Planet of the Apes. But I think Planet of the Apes allows us to do that. Um, anyone who actually laughs off the idea, and I think that's part of my scepticism in the past of like laughing off, oh, this is a kind of a preposterous idea, but it's handled really well. And I think increasingly so. And this one, yeah, we are on the side of the apes much more. I think for the first half hour, you almost don't see a human. And so I think, uh, apart from an initial battle, but we are clearly more, uh, as an audience member, meant to be siding with the apes, I think. And one of the fascinating things about all of these films and War for Planet of the Apes now is who are the apes? Well, I think clearly the humans are more so because what we're seeing on the ape side of things is a species not dissimilar to us who, before our very eyes are learning things about humanity. It's almost like watching a child learn to be a person and you see uh, these creatures uh, work out what's good and bad, right and wrong, and you sort of see them being shocked and appalled or reveling in the emotions and often justifying their own flawed humanity. And I'm still talking about apes yeah. up on screen. And I think one of the most powerful things about these movies, let alone them being quite um, you know, exhilarating action uh, adventures like big budget blockbusters one of the real strong things about them is making these these movies make us reflect about us because we watch these apes effectively be a mirror for us and particularly how animalistic we can be so they're Oof. they're they're becoming more human we're becoming more simian yeah yeah and look that's that's um the, the trajectory of the planet of the apes like heading towards the planet of the apes anyone who's seen the original like knows like kind of where it's going but i think they're doing a really good job of demonstrating that up on screen Hmm. Uh, the last few of these Apes films, I think they're called Rise and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, uh, have featured forgiveness a lot in in the in the storyline. 
is that the same case here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, forgiveness, uh, forgiveness is pretty powerful in this. So the the main ape is Caesar again, played really well, and we can like we can actually say this like with a straight face, played really well by the actor Andy Serkis. Yeah, um, we're not just of, talking about crass animation anymore. We're no, actually talking about acting. We're talking about motion capture performances where an actor performs this on a soundstage and then is animated over the top. And again, the rendering of these apes, some of the scenes of the faces of the apes, I was just kind of staggered by. Uh, But to get back to your question, Sam, yes, forgiveness, again, uh, figures very strongly in this. It's largely defined by a personal ability or desire to forgive. So Mm -hmm. the big thing that the apes are kind of discovering is that forgiveness is quite powerful, but they can kind of decide if they want to use it or not, which is is a pretty stark contrast to the biblical idea of forgiveness, particularly as modeled by Jesus, that it's not sort of it's not about how many times; it's more about the motivation to do it, why you would do it, and the fact that it's more of a demeanor and a temperament. Speaking of the Bible, gentlemen, and forgiveness, I was amazed at the War for the Planet of the Apes. This is what really stood out to me: at how many biblical references and allusions are in this movie. And I'm not just making this up. I was surprised that in the near future, when there's a war between animals and humans. And at a time that we're living in now where people are often saying the Bible's irrelevant, I would have thought in the near future where there's battles happening, the Bible would be even more irrelevant. Mm. But you get everything from references to the Exodus events and the walls of Jericho and Moses in the Promised Land to one character in this film saying the line, and I kid you not, he says he realized there was a moment where he would have to sacrifice his only son to save the world. And I'm not making that up. Mm. And so me as a Christian, I'm sitting back going, wow, it's amazing how the Bible permeates the world still even when people are telling me it's irrelevant, and it's up on screens in War for the Planet of the Apes. Whew. Okay, well, War for the Planet of the Apes stars Andy Serkis as ape leader Caesar, while Woody Harrelson plays a real-life person. Very nasty piece of work. Mm. And War is now going bananas at a cinema jungle near you and is rated M for mature themes, violence, and largely monkey business. So many puns, Mark Hadley. Thank you. So many puns. Well, coming up on The Big Picture, we return to the original Planet of the Apes. Is it still a cool place to visit? You'll find out soon. And Mark's going to reveal the most realistic top five we have ever done, Talking Animals. Hey, great to have your company around The Big Picture popcorn machine. Yes, and earlier in the show, Ben shared his reactions to the new film, The War for the Planet of the Apes. In short, ape-tastic. Ape- <laughs> ape-erific. <laughs> Stop monkeying around. Oh, dear. <laughs> as he mentioned, and really as every self-respecting movie fan should already know, the original Planet of the Apes was released in 1968 and it became a gorilla-sized hit. Massive. Insights managing editor Adrian Drayton dug back into the vault this week to return to the original Apes movie and let us know if it's still a legendary place worth visiting. So in the original film, which came out in 1968, but came out at the tail end of the civil rights movement in the US. Mm. So it was a bit of an allegory for that. It's about three astronauts, which uh, end up being marooned on what they think is a futuristic planet, but in the climax. But let's let's not give away let's not give away the climax too early for those who haven't who haven't seen it. But they're three astronauts. They land on a planet. Yes, they do. And what they realise is that they are in the minority. Apes have a they they're upright and they can talk. And they realise that they've got a class system and all this sort of stuff. The astronauts suddenly find themselves as part of a devalued society, I suppose. Where humans are down way at the bottom of the pecking order, a little bit like animals can be treated sometimes by humans, right? Exactly, yes. 
Charlton Heston is the lead in the film. He's one of the astronauts. And there's quite a few other notable actors like Roddy McDowell, who plays an ape in, in makeup, unlike in the recent trilogy where they're all CGI motion capture. That makeup was, was pretty good. Like, it's kind of laughable by today's standards, but was, it, it was dealt with seriously, wasn't it? It wasn't a comedy. It wasn't meant to be being played for laughs. It was like a kind of thoughtful action piece from the late 60s. It was definitely, and I think it was it was saying to us that you know if we take society to its logical conclusion and we act like animals ourselves, that will end up wiping ourselves out. And obviously, the storyline is apes taking over and evolving and being able to talk and run the society themselves. And it had a bunch of sequels, didn't it? It had about four sequels plus a TV show, I believe. The beauty of the original series is it was at the time it was very groundbreaking and original, and it made some really salient points about um, racism and what was happening in the world at the time. Yeah. And then all these recent reboots, uh, one of which we try never to speak of, that Tim Burton reimagining, whatever that was, about 10 years ago. And then thankfully the whole Planet of the Apes idea has been rescued by this recent franchise of films. Why do you think this continues to endure, this idea of a planet of the apes and humans being part of it but not in the way we normally are? I think that the reason it continues to endure is because it, it shows us in it's a clear allegory for the fact that if humans keep warring and wanting to wipe each other out and are not sort of addressing some of the problems we have. Oh, like the original was trying to commentate about, as you mentioned earlier, the civil rights movement in America in the 1960s. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So this was kind of a futuristic look at what could happen, I suppose. So that in, its, in and of itself is quite interesting because it's saying that we just really need to, well, particularly from a Christian perspective, we need to look at how we act and what we do as a template for society, I suppose. That was Adrian Drayton, Managing Editor at Insights, longtime supporters of the big picture, just like Eternity Newspaper, eternitynews.com.au, where you can actually go and see a stack of big picture videos that are accumulating over there. For a start, Ben's piece on War for the Planet of the Apes. Also, my own personal contribution, Who Would Jesus Date? Who Would Jesus Date? Whoa, clickbait <laughs> yes. provocative. I'm just saying, if, you, if the Planet of the Apes gets you excited, go have a look at that as well. <laughs> Plus, Ben on Dunkirk and my tongue-in-cheek confession. I'm a climate change denier. See? <laughs> what what, what won't Mark Hadley do on videos over at Eternity News? Well, if you're interested, head on over to eternitynews.com.au for all sorts of big picture shenanigans. Well, you've shared some opinions there, Mark Hadley. I think we're about to get to even more of them because the top five this week is... Something to do with animals that talk? Yeah, again, the most realistic top five we've ever conceived of on the show. And, you know, we've had 117 up until this point, episode 118. So, Mark, the most realistic top five is going to be... Sorry, I just can't believe, actually, you think back that there are 117 top fives before this one. We're not running out of ideas at all. No, no, no. I know. Which brings us to this week. That's right. I got all excited about the release of War for the Planet of the Apes. And that led me to think about all the other excellent talking animals. I've enjoyed oh, over boy. the years. Strap yourselves in, friends. <laughs> so, for the top to top off the program, let me bring you my top five talking animals. Five. 
Let's start with something that represents all those cartoonish creatures from Hollywood and beyond, you know, like the B-movie and A Bug's Life, Ants, Bolt. There's always some sort of talking creature in animation or so much. I'd like to begin with Chicken Run. Ah, great from choice. 2000. Chicken Run, Claymation, my favourite talking Claymation animals. The characters of Chicken Run, Arden and Animation and DreamWorks have basically constructed a great story about a bunch of chickens living in what's something like a concentration camp. It's basically you know, just a chicken version of The Great Escape, the Steve McQueen indeed. war movie, is it not? It's an absolute steal. Mel Gibson plays that sort of Steve McQueen type character, Rocky the Rhode Island Red. <laughs> <laughs> the role Mel Gibson was born to play, Rocky the Rhode Island Red. He's really good in it. He is very yeah. good. He promises to teach a bunch of battery hens how to fly to freedom. <laughs> um, and uh, basically, it's a who's who of British comedy. You've got Jane Horrocks and Imelda Staunton. You've got Julie Sawala. Um, I love Babs. Okay, now Babs is played by Jane Horrocks, and she's just this big sort of like constantly knitting chicken. Oh, is that Jane Horrocks from Absolutely Fabulous? Yeah, yeah, that's right. right yeah. yeah. And, um, and she plays this constantly knitting chicken, and she has those lines like, you know, I don't want to be a pie. I don't like gravy. Of course, <laughs> why would she? I love it for its ultimate honesty and its ability to turn lemon uh, into lemonade. It's talking brilliant. animals and talking about their fate. Yep. But, I mean, if you're going to do talking animals and you're Australian, you've got to mention Skippy. No, Skippy never actually talked. What you've got to do is you've got to mention Babe from 1995. Yeah, I think you're contractually obligated as an Australian. We did that. And let's face it, it was a bit of a a, a world success. You know, a bit of a little film that could. It was an adaptation of Dick uh, Kingsmith's 1983 novel, The Sheep Pig. It was very much like, if you haven't seen, it's kind of like Charlotte's Web. If you haven't seen Charlotte's Web, it's kind of like a very sort of um, moving, story about a little pig who actually finds his place in the world who wants to be a sheepdog and the other barnyard animals that get caught up in helping him get there it's a little bit different to animal farm isn't it it is a little different yes insofar as more people die in animal farm yeah and a little bit different to mad max which also starred mel gibson and the director of this george miller did mad max and then he did babe like that's on his that's on his cv mad max and babe if it wasn't for george miller no one would put mad max and babe in the same i know and Happy Feet, he directed. What is going on? I'd love to sit around the table and talk to George Miller about what, mate? must be a very up and down personality. (laughs) Anyway, Babe, um, played by Christine Cavanaugh, is a great character. But my favourite is Ferdinand the Duck. Okay, there's this sort of like duck that's desperate to, to have a life beyond being a duck because ducks get eaten. And, and he believes that he's going to get eaten if he doesn't come up with a, a real sort of purpose for his life. So he's trying to be a chicken. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Ferdinand's great line, I suppose the life of an anorexic duck doesn't amount to much in this broad scheme of things. And it's true. Three. Ah, the plight of talking animals. Now, I'm going to take us somewhere a little more serious. I'm actually going to take us from the adorable to the reprehensible. I'm going to take us to Smog the Magnificent. The second volume of The Hobbit, uh, The Desolation of Smog, came out in 2013, introduced us to a talking dragon. That's Uh, not an animal. I'm just saying that now. Oh, wow. Dragons oh, are not wow. animals. Controversial. They're monsters. Oh, and a yeah. monster can't be an animal? Just going to go on fact check. You can go <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, while Sam gets his dictionary out, I'll move on <laughs> with this review. Uh, look, personally, I think that Benedict Cumberbatch did a brilliant job voicing Smog the Dragon. It's one of the best parts in the book is when Bilbo and the devilish dragon Smog have a conversation and it's well realized on screen. I love the line where Smog says to Bilbo, you have good manners for a thief. 
and a liar. You know, it's just... <laughs> and yet the character of Smog comes out really well. Interestingly, Cumberbatch wasn't satisfied with doing an awesome voice for Smog, but also voiced the necromancer in the film as well. The spirit of Sauron, the great, returned. Oh, yeah, yeah. right. Talk about hogging the villains. <laughs> <laughs> Two... Okay, I couldn't have gone to this any ape show reference without doing Rise of the Planet of the Apes from 2011, which is actually one of my favourite films for um, digital animation and basically, oh, what's the, the technique? It's motion capture. Motion, motion capture. capture, yeah. Which I think, you know, personally revolutionised acting in a sense because it meant that people could actually take on roles they could physically never do. It was element, elementary. Anyway, James Franco stars as Will Robin, the scientist who creates a substance designed to help the brain repair itself and in the result creates super intelligent chimpanzee Caesar he is one of my favorite re- this is one of my favorite reboots of all time uh, you know the whole thing and Andy Circus is the king of motion capture you know he's done Gollum he's done King Kong he's done Jungle Books Baloo and now he plays Caesar and there's this line which I think really summarizes the whole sense of dislocation for these characters because Will Robin is trying to bring um, Caesar back and he says you know if you come home I'll protect you. And Caesar looks at the at the forest all around him and says this memorable line: "Caesar is home." You know, I think it's great. I, I, I'm getting all emotional. Play the sting. One. This is my favourite talking animal of all time, and it comes from the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from 2005. Mm, I see where you're going. That film demonstrated that Christianity, told in an interesting way, could be as compelling and enchanting and as exciting as any other film. And I thought that that alone should give it a sort of a benchmark position. C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe simply is stacked with talking animals. You've got Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who are great characters. You've got Mr. Fox, and of course, you've got Aslan, the great lion, the lord of all creation, obviously going to be voiced by Liam Neeson. You know, who else? Of course, has the, the Morgan voice? Freeman was busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Aslan, uh, having given up his life to save Edmund, uh, delivers the line, which is straight from the Bible. It is finished. Mm. Uh, And I think that's a beautiful line because, of course, it's borrowed from the most famous king of all time, the king of peace, the last words of Jesus as he dies on the cross and purchases salvation for everyone. And introducing the world to that line again through the mouth of a talking lie is a really good thing. Azan is just a shadow of the great king, but a noble shadow at that. But we saw the knife. If the witch knew the true meaning of sacrifice, she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. We sent the news that you were dead. Peter and Edmund will have gone to war. We have to help them. We will, dear one, but not alone. Oh, that's lovely. Isn't thank it? you, Liam Neeson, and thank you, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's all the time we got for the show this week. Ah, but coming up next Yay. week, French director Luc Besson's family masterpiece. It's called Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. We're also going to have multiracial rom-com, The Big Sick, and the return of the environment with an inconvenient sequel. Adios. I've been Ben McKechn, and I'll still be Mark Hadley. See you then. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 